0: We're in Numbers 24, and as the subtitle states, we're looking at the final words of Joshua. A lot of the scripture characters have given their final words, but Joshua should speak to us today. Arise, move, and go. The testimony of Joshua. We'll be taking some portions out of chapter 24, highlight them and see if we can ascertain a message for us. We flew through the book of Joshua last week. We jettisoned through chapters 1 through 23. That means we really didn't drill down into it. We really didn't unpack it. We didn't really investigate it for all the riches that are there. You can do that on your own time. It was intentional. We're moving towards the close of our year. We will be doing a number of Uh, messages between now and Christmas around the person and work of Jesus. It's called Christology. This will be a a good time to remind you who he is and how the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has told us that he is the one that comes. And this is what Christians must always know. You must always know that it's about Jesus. If anything takes you away from Christ, it's Antichrist. You must Always know that, the fog of life, the confusions and chaoses and troubles of life, they're designed for one thing, to take your eyes off of Jesus, Messiah. And Joshua is actually going to speak to the children of Israel along these same lines. Being a senior now, if you read his account, Joshua will pass away from us in a few days and he will be 110 years old when he does. That means he started his ministry for God rather late. God can use people at any stage of life. And he used Joshua mightily. So much could be said about it. But the 24th chapter is really instructive to us. And I want us to work through it. Joshua served for us as a model and type of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, he was a foreshadow, his work was a foreshadow of the first coming of Christ in the ministry of the gospel by the power of God in that magnanimous work that we have recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of how he went about doing good and, and healing and raising the dead and, and preaching the gospel and manifesting what was in Torah, the idea of the days of Messiah, the days of Mashiach, the days of Yeshua. That is the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are living presently in that time as we move closer to the close of our age. We are still in the days of who? Messiah. We are in the days of the Lord Jesus. The days of the Lord Jesus are not coming. The days of the Lord Jesus are here. I'm so glad the early church had a greater understanding of who Jesus was than we do. They had enough sense to go Anno Domino. Do you know what that means in the Latin? It means year of our Lord. That means the whole world revolves around who he is as a timetable. This is 2023 year of our Lord. And that's because the world had a consciousness around Christ raised to them because of 11 faithful men and then ultimately 12 who went into all the world with the gospel. You and I are beneficiaries of that. And Joshua was the one that God used, as we learned last week, to bring Israel into the possession of the promised land. And now Joshua is closing out The book of Judges will follow Joshua, will it not? And the book of Judges will inform us that, you know, the further Joshua gets away from the people of God, the crazier they get. And the further that Christ gets away from you and me, the crazier we get. And so the book of Judges will serve for us as a period of compromise and collapse compromise of the gospel and collapse of character, because as Joshua states in the final words of chapter 24, around verse 30, uh, 30, 30, by the way, uh, let's see here, yes, Uh, verse 29 and 30, and it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died, and he was a hundred and 10 years old. They buried him in the border of the inheritance of Timoth, Sarah, which was in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill. Now look at verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of who? Right. This is the days that compare with the days of Jesus and all the elders uh, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua that were contemporaries with Joshua that did ministry with Joshua. Israel was faithful to God while Joshua was around and they were faithful to God while those who knew Joshua was around. And this corresponds with the first century church. The body of Christ was pure in its gospel and it understood who Christ was and was valiant for the truth so long as the apostles were around. But once the apostles started to die off, the church was invaded by heresy and heterodoxy. And by the time we get to Constantine, graciously speaking, the fourth and fifth century, the Christian era, the church begins to compromise the gospel. And the next thing you know, it collapses into what we'll be warned about by Joshua today, and that is worldliness and carnality. The church did exactly what Israel said. We want a king to rule over us. When in fact, we already have a king. His name is Jesus. And so we want to look at Joshua's last words because there are a number of things we can learn from here. And and if I might make an application early on for young people, this would be um, a word to you in optimism that your life is in front of you And to the degree that you understand who you are in God through Christ today, you can secure a life of meaning and purpose to the degree that you forget the God of your parents. If they taught you well and taught you right, the world that is offering you what it is today is an absolute mess. If you are going to withstand and overcome and triumph and thrive in this crazy world, young people, you are going to have to really know who you are and whose you are and why God leaves you breathing every day. And I promise you, if you make that a pursuit, you can and will be all that God has called you to be. And so as we open up our text, there are going to be four things that I want to want you to wrestle with with me as we deal with Joshua's framing of this last chapter. This is like this is like grandpa, great grandpa, 110 years old. Say, everybody, come on around. I got a word for you. Uh, get your coffee, get your water, get your lemonade, get your Kool-Aid, whatever you need. Sit down. I'm going to talk to you for a few hours, and then I'm going home to glory. That's Joshua. That's the essence of what he's going to do. And you know how we as grandparents do. We always have stories. We always have narratives. We always have the good old days. And then we try to extract moral principles out of it to give to you, to kind of help you hedge your way. So there are three things. And then a final point under point number one, possessed by power. Point number two, obtained by grace. Point number three, retained by faith. And we'll make these clear in a moment in point number four, a witness, a witness to Christ. We start in chapter 24, at verse 13, where it says, And I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you are presently dwelling in them of vineyards and olive olive, uh, olive yards, which you did not plant." Now, Joshua is speaking in the first person, but it's God here speaking. God is the one that prepared this land for them. God is the one that prepared these provisions for them. And God through Joshua is letting the people know you are only in this place because of a great work I did to bring you from Egypt all the way to the promised land. You're only here because there was an exertion of power on God's part to do something for you, as we'll see in point number two, that you couldn't have done for yourself. Listen to the way that Joshua puts it over in verses five through uh, verse 12. He says over in verse five, this is God speaking through Joshua. I sent Moses also and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them after I brought you out. You guys know very well the whole year that God visited upon Egypt, the destruction that he did, and then brought Israel out. Now, you might have forgotten that the people who are being spoken to right now did not witness that. They're being told a story of an event that occurred before they were born. And what God is letting them know, which is a really good application to you and me. I really think it is. Um, a lot of times other men have labored and you and I are entering into their labors. But we might forget that other people have lived and worked hard and toiled and struggled to obtain certain things and may have passed it on to you by inheritance or by privilege. It doesn't have to be that we always inherit something, but someone may open the door for you after they have broken up the fallow ground and tilled the soil of a difficult way so that when you sow your seed, it can bring forth a harvest 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold, much easier than it did for them. That, does that make some sense? And, and therefore you and I should be very thankful and cognitive, cog, cognitive of the fact that other people have put me where I am. I'm not here because of me. I'm here because of a work that other people did. Now we're, we're subscribing to God the power that did that because Joshua's reminding them of how they came out of Egypt. Verse six says it like this, Joshua 24, verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt and they came unto the sea and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. What is he describing now? The war and battle that was waged against their parents when God decreed to Pharaoh, let my people go. What God was reminding the children is that the freedom that they are now enjoying did not exist forever. And that their fathers who were brought out of Egypt didn't walk out of Egypt. It was a war that brought them out of Egypt. It was a battle that was fought that brought them out. In other words, your freedom and mine is at the cost of the blood of others. And when you and I mock our freedom, we disgrace those who have gone before us to lay down their lives in order for us to enjoy this. Now, if you want to matriculate that offense all the way up, your freedom in Christ was a consequence of a war he fought, a war he died in, a war which he shed his blood for, and a war which he won in our behalf. You and I are only free because of him, if that makes some sense. And this is exactly what Joshua is saying to the children of Israel. Three subpoints under possessed by power. In other words, Never forget, you and I are objects of God's goodness and grace because of the power of God. I like the way that Paul puts it as we go to our text. Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's the reason why. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. If there's any reason to boast in, to advance, to promote the gospel, it's because the gospel has the power to save people. If it saved you, it can save anyone. And this is why we're not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, for many of us, as Joshua is about to prove, we lay down our lives for the gospel. The gospel is not a secondary sort of attendant to our life. The gospel is the essence of our life for those who are people of the gospel. And this is what we see in the text. It's very clear that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And it was vividly demonstrated by the signs and wonders that Jehovah did when he brought Israel out of Egypt. Remember what he said? Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, but he won't. And that will be in order that I might show a mighty hand and a powerful work in destroying all of Pharaoh and Egypt, and then my people will come out. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, again, you and I are the objects and beneficiaries of power, if you know the grace of God. You and I have been saved by the powerful hand of the true and the living God. This is what Israel saw. You can imagine that, right? You are slaves in Egypt. You are serving a system for which you and your relatives have served for 430 years. I taught you that. That means they were really maladjusted to being Egyptians for a long time. We know what that's like, right? Many of us know what's that, what that's like growing up in bondage and growing up in the hood and growing up trapped and growing up in sin and growing up limited and growing up control. You get used to being a slave. And then someone comes along and delivers you and you may even very well equivocate because that's what we learned as we went through the book of, um, of, of Exodus, how that Israel constantly complained and opined about going back. You and I can get really crazy about God's freedom in our life. And Israel did. So, under subpoint A, deliverance was wrought by signs and wonders. We should never forget that. Signs and wonders. The one true and living God showed up through Moses and Aaron through signs and wonders. Subpoint B, but also a demonstration of blood redemption. Do you recall what happened on that fateful night? Exodus 12, verse 13. Exodus twelve thirteen. We call it what? Passover, right? The Paschal feast the preparation for Israel to come up out of Egypt and walk out of Egypt and walk into the wilderness, the Paschal Feast. Here's what God told them. And the blood shall be to you for a sign upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, says God, I will do what? Pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Israel is now being educated. Not only are they being saved by power in terms of God being the source of it, but the agency of that power is the blood of a paschal lamb. And this is what we understand to be the redemptive emblem that allows these people to come out while God destroys the rest of Egypt. Does that make some sense? All right, I'll drill it home just in case you don't know. The only reason the Israelites were brought out was because of blood. The blood that was on the doorpost indicated the blood that was necessary for God to be propitiated so that when the angel of death walked through Egypt, everything that did not have the blood on it would die. And that's a great emblem of our salvation again, is it not? When someone asks asks you, how did God save you? You can say first by power. Well, is there anything else? Yes, by blood. Because it was the blood of the lamb that efficaciously delivers us from our sin. What does that mean, pastor? That the people that were brought out of Egypt were still yet sinners. God saves Sinners. They weren't better than the Egyptians. They were sinners. And God chose to save a group of sinners by power and by what? Blood. And then at that magnanimous event over in chapter 14, where he tells Moses to raise the rod, he opens up what? The Red Sea. And Israel goes across dry shot again. And Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, you know this, that the Red Sea was a kind of what? Baptism. Israel is saved by power. Israel is saved by blood. Israel is saved by water. Are we not also? Power, blood, and water. And all of these are getting ready to make another point that I want you to carefully, carefully get. When God's testimonies are set forth, They are presupposing that you understand that everything that God does for you, none of it is a consequence of you meriting it. It's all a consequence of God's good choice on your behalf because he chose to show you love. That's all that is. If you ever wake up in your right mind and you realize who the true and the living God is and the blessed mediatorial work of Jesus and you're happy about it, God's done something for you. Everybody doesn't wake up secure in Jesus. Everybody does not wake up grounded and soundly knowing that heaven is theirs because Jesus is there. But if you do, you are highly favored and blessed. So we see under the possession of power that Joshua trying to remind the people of is that there was a deliverance of signs and wonders. There was a demonstration of blood redemption, but there's also a discipline of his what? Lordship as the true God. I'm going to teach you a little bit more here. Look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 24. I love this. And I brought you into a land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hands that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. At that time, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel. We were just there, were we not? And sent and called Balaam, the son of Bur to do what? Curse you. But I would not hearken to Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came into Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, uh, uh, Gigashites, and hivites and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your what? Hands. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword, not with your bow. (laughs) Do you see it? You didn't do it. I did it. I want to teach you something here as we, as we uh, encompass this. Then he says in verse 13, and I have given you a land for which you did not labor. What is God doing? Are you ready? God's admonishing them. He's chastising them. He's chastising them. Okay. So imagine, you know, you're sitting with grandpa, our great grandpa, and, uh, and you know, grandpa knows you, but you didn't really know he knew you like he really does know you. And now he's recalling all the events in the family. And then he gets particular with those events around things that have happened where you messed up. You messed up. Now, let me see if I can help you. I want you to get this. This here is a a theological paradigm in scripture. When God chastens you, God is not judging you. God is chastening you to conform you to his image. When God chastens you, it's because he loves you. The Hebrew writer puts it very clearly in Hebrews chapter 12, all whom the Lord loves, he does what? Stay with me right now. So what you're hearing in these words are chastening, not judgments. God is chastening Israel as he admonishes them and reminds them, as you were making your way towards the land, you had adversaries coming after you. But you notice that in the account, what God does not do, he does not recall in the mouth of Joshua all the evil that Israel did. All he recalls is that when the enemies rose up against them, God intervened. God stopped them. God hindered them. God controlled the affairs. God made sure that they weren't destroyed. And isn't that how God is in our life? Somebody better hurry up and acknowledge it. Watch this now. A lot of times trouble is going to come directly from the Lord to try you, to test you. Okay, to challenge you and to conform you to his image. Now, you and I can look deeply into those trials and we can immediately find where we have rebelled against the Lord. Can we not? We can. You know how often we'll do? Because some of us are really good at negative sequencing, are we not? We love drilling down into the earth and going to the other side of the world. Drill a hole and then come out on the other side of the world and look at the world, go, woo! And and this is how negative we can be about ourselves. Stay with me. God knows that. He knows you're frail. He knows you're weak. He also knows you're vulnerable. He also knows this. He also knows that the devil knows that about you. God knows that he knows that you will often be more severe on yourself than God will because he doesn't have to because he pities you. But he also knows the enemy knows your weaknesses, too. Am I making some sense? And God will see that you will often engage in self-flagellation, self-destruction, self-hypercriticism to a point where you will raise the question, is God judging me? Is God punishing me? how often do you not say that when things go awry in your life? Is God, is God bringing a curse upon me? We hear a whole bunch of crazy stuff like that. I'm not going to go into those parentheticals, but you and I have learned that no one can curse whom God has blessed. If that's true, why are you asking questions like, am I under a generational curse? Why am am I suffering all this evil? And as I have so gingerly heard recently, you will blame God for your problems. Come on now. What I'm getting ready to help you understand before we move on is that the recollection that Joshua is doing is about chastening. It's not about condemning. All whom the Lord loves, he will correct. Now, the way the correction is coming in our text, which I love, it's coming without God recounting specifically and in detail all of the rebellion you and I went through all these sermons. Do y'all recognize that there was one, not one sermon I preached on the excursion of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land where Israel didn't rebel against God? And yet you, you read none of that in this recount. All you read in this recount is that God said, when you got in trouble, I delivered you. Which echoes what our our worship instructor was saying in Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Am I making some sense? All right, so I'm going to cap it off this way. If you're not getting what I'm saying, if you're a child of God, when he allows trouble in your life, difficulty in your life, he allows it for you to examine yourself. He allows it for you to see where your weaknesses are. He allows it in order that you might know that you have an enemy without and an enemy within. He allows that, but he means for you to do what he told you to do every time you get in trouble. Don't try to work it out in your own strength. Don't try to solve your own problems. Don't try to analyze it with your own natural carnal mind. Don't use your own weapons of war to go to battle. You call upon the name of the Lord. You seek Jehovah. You ask God for grace. You be ready to confess your sin, acknowledge your rebellion, say, it's me, it's me, O Lord, in the need of prayer and mercy and redemption. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Your troubles and minds will be prolonged to the degree that we don't own our rebellion. See, that's all God ever is wanting to do. But notice what he isn't doing, which I love. Be instructed. He's not bringing up all of their mess and dumping it in their face. You know how people tend to do. They just want to bring it up all the time. All the mistakes you make. God doesn't do that. See, now when he's correcting you, he will talk about the history. He'll let you know what he did. And he'll have you to infer from it that God was good to you in spite of your indifference towards him. Did that make some sense? It's very important to understand that final point then, a, a discipline of his lordship as the true and the living God. I want you to capture that. No mention of rebellion. All right, point number two. Let's, let's move on. So we're dealing with how Joshua was describing the power of God and possessing the land and bringing them into it. But point number two says that was all obtained by what? It's all obtained by what? grace is God's redemption at Christ's expense. Grace is God giving you something that you don't deserve. Grace is a pure act on God's part to smile on you and bless you because he wants to. Did that make some sense? All right. That's only one definition of it. The other side of that definition is this. Because God is holy and just and pure and righteous, he's got to actually accrue conditions by which you can hang out with him. Did that make some sense? Right? Please understand this. If God's going to show you grace, it's grace in order to change your life so that you can fit the conditions by which you and him can have fellowship. God doesn't save you and leave you as you are. He never has and never will. You're about to learn that right now. So like, like when God's grace starts showing up viscerally and practically in your life, it might actually look a little crazy. Right. Like God will have to disrupt your maladjusted behavior. Like God will often have to show up because he knows you are trapped by all kinds of false gods and idols. This is what Israel didn't like when God came to Egypt. They were complaining, man, we're doing fine. Man, we're doing fine. Broke as a dog, making, making brick out of, out of strawless, you know, fodder, sweating as they could, but they were, they were maladjusted, right? But God was helping them understand, you're moving from this situation. I got to bust up a bunch of things to make that happen because I need your mind renewed. I need you to think differently than you are thinking. You are in the rut. You are in the problem. You are in the struggle. You are in the matrix. You are in the conflict that you're in because you made bad choices. I'm getting ready to bust those choices up and it's going to feel pretty bad because that's how medicine is. Right? I used to hate when my mama stuck penicillin in my mouth when I was. anybody remember that yellow penicillin that I got a few old folk? It was the nastiest stuff and I swore I wasn't going to ever eat again, right? The next day I was feeling so good. And that's often how God is in dealing with us, right? The blueness of the womb will bring healing to the soul. Right. And a lot of us know that element of grace. And so God's grace will sometimes chasing you, but it's only preparing you in order that you might be able to walk with him in a way that will bring him honor. Point number two, really simple, obtained by grace. This is what you can extract from verse 13. So I have given you, I have given you, I have given you. You see that construction? I have given you. You didn't earn it. You did not earn it. I have given you. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You're not better than anyone else. Hurry up and get that. You're not worse than anyone else either. You're just not better than anyone. All of us are the same. Did y'all know that? The one thing that makes us all common is we're sinners. And it's important for you to know that. It's terrible for a sinner to act like he's not a sinner. But people do it all around the world, particularly ethnic groups. I've told you about this before. Somebody cute, they think that they're better than somebody else because they're cute. That's called the self-righteousness of face. Did I tell you about that? Then people will have the self-righteousness, and this one is a big idol today, even right now, of race, of race. You think you're better than someone because of your race. How delusional can that be? You might be cute, but you're still a sinner you may be a gifted race, but you're a sinful gifted race. All right. And then religious folk will try to take grace and make it something by which they're superior to others. But see, that's a malapplication of grace. Never take the grace of God and say, because I'm a child of grace, I'm better than you. That betrays the fact that you don't know what grace is. All right, So, yes, I'm chastising you right now. Pastor, you feel like you're chastising because I love you. OK, I, I know it feels like you because because see, false religion will send you to hell while you feel good. You'll feel better than other people. You know more than other people. You're more faithful than other people. You don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do the other thing. So you're better than other people. You don't ever tell people what you do do. But God knows what you do do. And what you do do is do-do to God, and because it's do-do to God, it actually takes away all that you didn't do. All that you didn't do means nothing because of what you did do. One sin will break the totality of God's standard, and now you stand guilty before God, and you don't have enough in your tank to pay for one sin. Am I making some sense? Right. Right. So please understand what God is doing with Israel. He's really getting Israel to understand how privileged, how blessed and how responsible they are. I got to go a little further if you don't mind. So obtained by grace is just a magnificent truth. So point A, provisions of grace, provisions of grace. Where do they come from? They come from a God of mercy. We quoted this last week, but I'm going to quote two verses, John 1, 16. And John quickly tells us that the grounds of the blessings that we all have come from a person and his name is Jesus. And God has placed in Jesus the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And what God said in Colossians 2.9 about Jesus being the fullness of the Godhead bodily is that you and I are complete in him. Did that make some sense? So all the fullness is in Jesus. And you and I are complete when we're in Jesus. We have everything necessary for life and godliness when we walk with Christ. I can use the metaphor of a, a big old vat over the top of your head with, with a portal at the bottom that when you open it up, the vat pours out blessings and the blessings pour upon you. And if you open your mouth wide in your soul, you can drink in the blessings and now you become the fullness of God in Christ. Now you can take that fullness in you that you got from him and you can pass that fullness to somebody else. Did that make some sense? And God really means for it to be that way. But the moment you go to thinking that you deserve grace, the vat closes at the portal and then you begin to dry up. That's a whole nother message. There are all kinds of dried up Christians that I know. Do you know a few of them? Dried up Christians who are not bearing good fruit, but thorns and thistles. They're like cactuses. Are you a cactus Christian today? See what I'm getting at? The moment you distort the fact that all the blessings come from God and that you are simply an object of mercy is when you're stealing God's glory. And that's when the blessings stop. And that's what Israel has done. They've done that. And this is what our text is going to teach us about it. Joshua's going to warn them. Three things Joshua is doing. Joshua giving us history. That's one. That's what the Holy Ghost does. He takes the past to teach us the what? Present. Joshua is affirming the, the possessions. That's what he's doing now. But he's about to warn them. Warn them about their future actions, you and I must be warned about that as well. So what John says is, and of his fullness, have we all what? Received and grace for grace. I love the construction. It is really clear. Of his fullness, have we all received. So you and I are recipients, are we not? Are we recipients? Are we recipients? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. If you are a recipient, then why are you boasting as if you didn't receive? See it? Look at what Paul says. For who makes you to be different than somebody else? Y'all got that? See, please let that drill into your head. What I love about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was probably more like Jesus than any of the other apostles. What do you mean by that, Pastor? He was able to rise above his ethnicity in such a way that he did not leverage his Jewishness he was able to be all things to all men for the purpose of the gospel and therefore be like my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not leverage his Jewishness because it's not about race. It's about grace. Did that make some sense? I love Paul for that. And and see, you can see by inference that the Lord was disciplining the other 11 because they were still strongly prejudiced in their Jewishness. So what does he do? He brings a brother out of due season who didn't rise up with them, who didn't have the accolade of saying, I walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They did, but he didn't. But Christ met him on the Damascus road, did he not? And told him, you would be my special servant to the Gentiles. And so Paul was able to rise up out of his arrogant racism into the grace that's in Christ and become, for you and I, a major model of Jesus. This is why we as Christians love Jesus the way we do. Do we not? Stay with me now. You know, the Holy Ghost is doing a little bit of hyssop cleaning now. We love Jesus because Jesus rolls way above racism. Way above racism. We love him because he transcended it and became all things to all men, the one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. Am I making some sense? And once you reduce Jesus, once you start to lower him and make him equal with your race, you diminish who he is. You obscure the glory of God and you are no longer a Christian. May that come home. The precious son of God hung between heaven and earth, strapped wide, but naked in your behalf, to let the world know I love sinners of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue and hue and color and gender, etc., 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 put all their sins on me. And that's what he did. And if that message doesn't come home to the church, we're done. You're done, church. Your job is done. To be a Christian is to be a militant against every carnal system in the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let me keep going. okay? so what Paul was doing with the Corinthians, because they got crazy about their gifts is what I meant by pride of grace. They had all these gifts, especially speaking in tongues. Okay, they for whatever reason, they love babbling and falling out and foaming all over the place. For whom makes you to differ what have you received? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you received it, why do you glory as if you have not received it? See what I'm getting at? That's a whole history on the part of the church of forsaking the grace of God and acting as if somehow they are the stewards of salvation. I can start with Catholicism. I can go to all the other works, religions. But in reality, when you get grace right, you know what it does? It humbles you and then lifts you up and puts you in a proper place alongside of Jesus as a son of the living God, and admonishes you that you're only in this position because of the grace of God. And this is, what, this is exactly what Joshua is trying to get across to the children of Israel here. Now, let's move to point number three briefly so we can get to our other points. And that grace which was obtained by God's power is retained by what? It's only retained by faith. Now, these are two different verbs obtained objectively by God, retained subjectively by faith. You and I are called to believe the gospel. You and I are called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are called to embrace by faith everything that I was saying about what God has done for us. Is that right? That's your call of duty. People who are going to hell who have heard the gospel are only going to hell because they have not retained it by faith. Did that make some sense? Right. He that hears and believes shall be saved. He that hears and do not believe they shall be damned. Please understand Then faith is the mechanism. Faith are the hands that embrace the grace of God and says yes to God for all that God has done for us. The man that rejects the grace of God is an absolute fool. And we got a bunch of them. And so point number three, retained by faith. This is what Joshua is getting across in verses 14 through 16. Now notice what it says. Now therefore what? Now therefore what? Now therefore what? It's important for you to get it because the Hebrew writer is going to explain it. The Hebrew writer is going to explain fear in relationship to faith. He's going to explain to you and I that we should fear that we do not enter into the rest that God provided for us as the children of Israel who did not enter into the rest that was provided for them. See, the children that are sitting there listening to Joshua now, they didn't actually die. Their parents died. Their grandparents died in the wilderness. They're in the land. But as we've already learned, they're not in it because they were better than their parents. What they're about to be told is you better walk by faith. You better trust God. You better serve him. You better embrace the gospel and let it be your life. You better own the one true and living God as your only savior and God. Am I making some sense? That's the nature of faith. The reason why God gives you faith is in order that you might cleave to Christ. There's no other reason you have faith. Faith is not about you. It's about him. That's exactly right. Listen to what it says under point number three, then retain by faith. Verses 14 through 16. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in what sincerity and in what? I'm going to come back there. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if you if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, well, then choose this day whom you're going to serve whether the gods uh, which your father served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are presently dwelling. But let me tell you, I've already resolved who I'm going to serve. That's what Joshua said. You guys can sit here and squabble about this God and that God and the other God and all the other gods. But as for me, me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. He really could have said, as for me and my house, we have served the Lord. I'm getting ready to get into that for a moment because I can see Joshua waxing a little bit, uh, a little bit intense now. Can you? Because he's about to now have a dialogue with them. Up to this point, he shared with them the history. Now he's pressing on them a point of application, a point of what we call imperative, a a point of application. You guys having heard the story of God's grace in your life, here's what you need to do. You need to fear the Lord who brought you into this place. You need to respect him, honor him, highly reverence the Lord. That's what it means to fear. Okay. So now notice what is being stated here under point number Uh, three sub point eight. And I want you to catch the paradox. Sub A says what? The labor of what? The labor of what? This is what Joshua's talking about. Faith is a labor. Some of us have been in the Lord for a long time and we know that, do we not? Faith is a labor, right? And it may seem, seem paradoxical, but a paradox is not a contradiction. I've told you that before, right? A contradiction are two things that cannot ever be reconciled. They are two mutually exclusive principles that by nature are totally opposite. A paradox are two independent realities that can coexist together when you understand them as a paradox. Para meaning alongside, dox means teaching. Did y'all get that? Para meaning two, dox means lesson. Or you can go two different lessons, two different instructions, two different doctrines. Both are true but they must be harmonized. Does that make some sense? Really simple. Is God sovereign? Are we not responsible agents before God? That's called a paradox. You got to hold them together. Does that make some sense? God's sovereign, but you and I are responsible. Are we responsible? If you hold them together right, then you retain God's sovereignty and you also retain human accountability. When God tells you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's human accountability. When he says trust Christ, that's something you and I are called to do. Did y'all get that? We know it because if we don't, we perish. You can always tell an imperative by its consequences. If an imperative is given to you with the consequences and they're negative, then you know it's an imperative. An indicative is for by grace are you saved. Did y'all get that? For by grace are you saved. What does that mean? God did it through faith. What does that mean? God graces you to have the condition and attitude of heart of believing what God did for you in Christ. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right? Otherwise, you and I don't get to warn people about damning, being damned if they don't trust Christ. And that's what our text is about to nurture us in the labor of faith. I love this. Listen to first Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. Listen to how Paul puts it. You can, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, that'll work. Remembering without ceasing your what? And your what? Now notice what Paul is doing. Now the church at Thessalonica was a very faithful gospel church. And when he opens up his epistle to them, he's reminding them of not only what they do, but who they are. Now here's what you and I get to do as Christians. We get to go. Does my faith work? Do you see that? Look at it again. Remembering without ceasing your what? Work of faith and your labor of what? Does my faith work and does my love labor? Because if my faith doesn't work and my love doesn't labor, my faith is dead and my love is empty. I just want you to set on that because the American church is completely ignorant of the qualitative nature and expression of faith. This is why James says faith without what is dead being all by itself. And God never gives you and I dead things. Faith is a gift, but it's not a dead thing. Faith is a living quality when implanted in your life expresses itself in love because faith works by what? And love is a powerful energy that drives your expression of faith when you have it. Am I making some sense? I want you to capture that because a lot of people are walking around with a dead faith. And this is why Joshua was saying, hey, listen now, now therefore serve the Lord with sincerity and in truth. Those are two qualities that the New Testament highlights as well. The New Testament tells us that we are to serve the Lord. That's really a powerful word there. Serve the Lord. Then going back to Joshua chapter 24, verse, uh, verse uh, f- uh, 14 and 15. J- uh, Joshua uses these words very, uh, very precisely and repeatedly. Notice now, therefore, fear the Lord and do what? Serve him in sincerity and in truth. So serving him is the expression, the motive that drives you is sincerity and truth. And then you get the expression of that. Put away the gods which your fathers served and the, on the other side of the flood. And then notice what it says in 15a. And if it seems evil to you to do what? Serve the Lord. Then choose this day whom you will what? Serve, which, and then it talks about whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the floods and so forth. The operative words in verse 14 and 15 is the word what? serve. Now that's the Hebrew term in the Old Testament, which means to be a slave. It means to be a slave. Okay. That term is a rich term that employs the idea somebody else owns you. The first time that word is used is in the Genesis narrative when God told Adam and Eve, now by the sweat of your bra shall you toil the soil of the land and you will serve God by toiling the soil of the land. I want you to get the metaphor to be in service to the Lord is the idea of working in his cultivated vineyard. You can see this with a lot of our brothers and sisters out there in the in the valleys. Can you see that? You see them out there toiling. Do you see them working? Do you see them working and toiling? You see them working and toiling. That's what God is calling you and I to do in the vineyard of the world of the souls of men to labor as his toilers in the vineyard. Y'all keeping up with me? The next time that word is used is when one is a slave. So Israel was a slave in Egypt and they were serving Pharaoh, were they not? And when you look at a slave, you can see a slave engaged in all kinds of tasks. Can you not? The one thing that you cannot say about a slave is that a slave is invisible. So when you are a slave, it is a visible calling. It is a calling to be expressed and seen and known by others. It's really true in the agriculture or the horticultural context as well. When people see uh, our brothers and sisters out there laboring, we are seeing them visibly working for the good of the land, for the produce and the benefit of others. Am I making some sense? This is why Jesus says the fields are white to harvest, but the slaves are few. So you have the horticultural and agricultural analogy of a slave or a servant. Then you have the slave paradigm of working for your master. And any slave working for his master has to let everybody else know that he's a slave. And he's working for his master. And that's the way that it is. Right. Am I making some sense? You don't get to hide your slavery right. Here's the third one and the more prominent one. The idea of being a slave, according to this text, is the idea of serving the Lord in his temple. Everybody in the temple is a slave. This is exact. Please, so I saw some faces. See, this is where your Christianity is totally jacked up because you actually think you're free to be your own boss at the same time be a Christian. But in reality, the Lord has a ministry, he has a calling, he has a witness, he has a testimony, he has a work, he has a business, he has an enterprise, he has an institution, and he has people that serve him in those institutions across all those categories who do it publicly, who do it joyfully, who do it visibly, because they are slaves of Jehovah. The church is no different. True, faithful Christians are committed to the work. I know it's hurting. Let the Lord discipline you. Because you see, we have a phony Christianity today that basically makes you an invisible slave. And God is glorified when he, by the Holy Ghost, implants the Father's name on your forehead. That is the counterpart to the number 666. We have our father's name in our forehead. What does that mean? God is on our mind. He's in our heart. He's in our thoughts. He rules our life. What does it mean? We are not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of being called the children of the living God. <laughs> serve the Lord with sincerity and with truth. Okay, so I wanted to drive home the word serve because Joshua is about to drill down into it. Doss about to drill down into it. He uses this term sincerity. Do you see it there? He uses this term sincerity. Now, in the generation in which I live, sincerity means being well-intentioned. Well, I meant well. Right. And the old school God says the road is paved to hell with good intentions. Right. It's not about good intentions here. It's about a qualitative Commitment to the task that you're called to. So the word sincere here in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word calm, calm, C-H-A-M. And it literally means to not spoil, to not be rotten, to not decay, to not corrupt, to not deconstruct. Now, I just use the analogy of the agricultural and horticultural metaphor. So when it says that you and I are to serve him in sincerity, it means you and I are not to serve him with a kind of faith that can be corrupted, that can be destroyed, that can spoil, that can decay, that can fall apart under pressure and trials. That's the parable of the sower and the seed. Y'all keeping up with me? Remember the parable of the sword and the sea fell on four soils, one on the wayside, didn't even get on the ground, the other on the shallow ground, then the thorny ground. Those two, what did they do? They choked the word so that it could not bear fruit 30 fold, fold 100 fold. Only one soil did good. It was called the good soil where it landed on the heart that had understanding and it bore fruit 30 fold, fold 100 fold. It's the idea that God doesn't give you a gift that once it produces, it spoils. God does not produce rotten trees. He doesn't produce rotten fruit. Y'all keeping up with me? Jesus said, make the tree good or the tree evil. Don't play this hypocrisy of I'm a good tree with bad fruit. That's not possible. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. I'm so glad that God is the tree. Christ is the tree. And I'm a branch in the tree. And every branch that abides in me will bear forth fruit. It will bear forth fruit and more fruit as God prunes it. This is why you got to accept chastening, because God loves to get fruit out of you. Did y'all get that? Like you go a long time in your blessing. I said blessing, I didn't say blessing, I said blessing. I'm taking the G off for a moment. I'm saying God's not in that blessing. That's the blessing of you working hard and acquiring material things and, and blessings and you becoming large. And it's all about you at that moment. God is shrinking and you are bounding and everybody's noticing you and you're making plans all for you. It's not for God, it's for you. And you're using what God has given you for you. And you're a child of the living God. And guess what? You're blowing up, but he's diminishing. When the Bible says you should diminish and he should be magnified. And often for the Christian, we get it backwards, do we not? As God is adding to us, we are adding to us. No, if God's adding to you, you should be adding to Christ. You should be adding to God's glory. You should be taking all the territory that he's given you and put the insignia of God's ownership on it. Let people know that what you have is by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. This is not about you. I am making some sense and I hope it sticks because a lot of Christians in America are completely deceived by a superficial facsimile of Christianity in the name of blowing up. And this is how you easily imperceptibly shift from a, 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 a quasi commitment to Jesus to really working for the devil and you don't even know it. Am I making some sense? Can I keep teaching? And so when, when, when Joshua says here that we are to uh, serve the Lord with sincerity, again, it's the idea of not deteriorating. It's the idea of the fruit not going bad. It's the idea of the whole life operating consistently. Notice what John fifteen sixteen says. I have chosen you. You did not choose me. Do you see it? And then you see how crazy, ignorant Christians love to run around talking about, I chose God. (laughs) Crazy, ignorant Christians. I can can cross this line on a lot of levels, but I want those of you who are sincere, really wanting to stay rooted and grounded in the gospel, because this is about sincerity and truth has to do with deeds and doctrine. Right now I'm dealing with deeds but I'm also dealing with doctrine. Don't ever let your doctrine get turned upside down and become humanism because that's what's running the world today. Jesus is put down while the man of sin is being exalted. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Whenever you listen to anything politically, sociologically, psychologically, institutionally, wherever you, wherever you are, and especially theologically, if Jesus is diminished, it's antichrist. Please understand that. And it's really hard to detect it because as the man of sin is blowing up in that system, in that paradigm, in that genre, whatever that is, you and I can be entertained by it. But it's distracting and destructive to your soul. By the time that thing is gargantuan, you have forgot to ask the question where is Jesus in it? And often it's way too late. It's way too late. You're arguing over this and you're arguing over that. And that system has intentionally eclipsed the glory of God, completely eradicated Jesus. He's not even in the conversation. We're wrestling over land and land rights and this and that. And Jesus is not in the equation. You ought to be offended. You ought to be offended. That's the goal of the enemy. He wants you to remain a Christian while you just hide Jesus under the carpet. Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is not Savior. Jesus is not wisdom. Jesus is not power. Jesus is not redemption. Jesus is not sanctification. Jesus is not the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is not the first and the last. Jesus is not Almighty God. He's not the Savior of the world. He's not the Prince of Priests. He's not the righteousness of God. Jesus is not your counsel. Jesus is nothing today. Raise your hand if you got it so much distraction going on, and Jesus is not in it. Are y'all hearing me? And Christians are duped every day. So what what, what Joshua is saying is, listen, you guys, you better take God seriously. That's what he's saying in this account. Let me walk this through. I I, I really definitely want you to get this. So mark this because you've heard it. I love this. This is our master saying it. The Old Testament Joshua is the New Testament Jesus, is he not? Yeshua means God is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. That's what the New Testament Greek for Jesus is, Savior, 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 Kurios. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Thank you, Lord. And I have ordained you. What does that mean? That means I have a purpose for you. What is that, Lord? That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should not spoil. It should not rot. It should not decay. It should not deteriorate. It should not diminish. It should not become rotten because that would indicate God's not in it. Y'all keeping up with me? And this is what he's saying to these young. See, the children that are sitting before Joshua are being blessed, are they not? because they've already entered into the promise. What, what Joshua wants the young people to do is be able to hold on to it. But he sees something in their hearts, like parents do. Isn't that right? We see the corruptions and the, the implications and the potential seed, because they got it from us. You know, kind, be, kind begins kind. You go, oh, Lord, there it is. There it is, that child thinking just like you. And if you're obscure, you go, oh man, he's acting just like his grandpa. Yeah, but grandpa had you, right? And so we're looking here at an account where Joshua knows he's got to say some difficult things right now. So let me see if I can elicit this to help you. This is a portion of the text that becomes extremely difficult for most Christians when they get sidetracked by the argument of free will and and the sovereignty of God. Let me see if I can help you. Notice what goes on in verse 16. Are you there? Now, I I want you to notice that the conversation changes here. It changes from a monologue. Joshua was the only one talking all the way up to this point. Grandpa was having the floor all by himself. And grandpa started waxing zealous and eloquent. You can see the spirit of Elijah rising up in grandpa. And then one of the grandkids said, all right, stop, grandpa, and started answering. Y'all got it? We, we, we don't want to hear you no more, grandpa, because we see that cane shaking. We see your lips trembling. You know how grandpa get when, he, when, he, when the Holy Ghost get on him? He go to equivocating and shaking, but he's dead earnest, is he not? Grandpa dead earnest. He wants you to get it right. Okay, okay, Grandpa. We didn't heard that enough. This is what rebellious young people do when Grandpa's talking. You better let Grandpa talk as long as Grandpa can talk. As long as Grandpa's not talking crazy, let Grandpa talk. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Let grandpa talk as long as he can talk, as long as grandpa's not crazy, then lost his mind, dementia, Alzheimer's, and all that, he's on another planet. Let grandpa talk. Let grandpa talk, okay? Because grandpa can teach you a few things. Because you young people know everything already. Let grandpa talk. Get some water, sit down, practice, patience, and let grandpa talk. Because grandpa one day won't be talking. Notice what it says. Retained by faith. Subpoint A, the labor of faith. And the next thing we read over in verse 16, and the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Sounds good, doesn't it? Uh-uh. This is where you have to use discernment. Verse 17, for the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up out of our fathers, uh, brought us, brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. Good so far, isn't it? That means these grandchildren have been listening to the stories of their grandparents all along until their grandparents died and it was in them. Therefore, you tell them the story. But do they really believe it? Listen to what it goes on to say. Verse 18, and the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Whoa! Boom! Powerful. Do you see that? Boom! Powerful. I think that was a. unintentional misreading of it. When our brother read it earlier, I wanted to see if he was going to get every word in verse night verse 18. It's extremely important for you to get it as well. Look at it again over in verse 18. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites in the land. Therefore, will we also serve the Lord for he is our God. Now you need to actually understand what's going on here. What these people did was tell Joshua, don't tell us how to serve God. We know how to serve God. We've been going to church every since we were three years old. Don't tell us how to serve God. We will serve God the way we want to. Are you ready to be taught? It's in one little word in there. It's the word also. Literally means in addition to, alongside of, with. We will serve Jehovah with, in addition to, alongside of all these other gods. Now the lights just came on, didn't they? Right, but now the lights should have been on Because I've told you more times than I, more times than I, I almost want to say I should, but I've told you this before. This is you. This is me. If God doesn't keep you from thinking, you can evade the mirror of Scripture. So I I want you to understand what they just did. Joshua just told them, you got to serve the one true and living God in sincerity and in truth. Sincerity means don't spoil, don't decay, don't rot, don't abandon God. In truth, it means the Hebrew term aman means to be settled about the matter. When we go, amen, it means we're settled about the matter. When you serve the one true and living God and you go, aman, that is Arabic, is it not? Everywhere in the world, aman means to be certain, to be solid, to be clear, to be true, to be decisive. When we go, aman, that means it's settled. Did y'all hear what I just said? That means there's no also in addition to it. There's no in addition to it. There's no moreover or beyond serving Jehovah. We're going to serve the gods of the Amorites, or the Parasites, or the Hivites, or the Jebusites, etc. What are the children of Israel saying? We can serve God and we can serve the gods of the land too. We can serve Jehovah, but we can serve these pagan gods too. Raise your hand if you got that. Right? How do you know that this is the case? That's exactly what these crazy people did the moment Joshua died. That's the whole book of Judges, is it not? Compromising Jehovah for the gods of the land. But here's the subtle little twist here that I want you and I to get before I close down. In our world, the vast majority of the Christian community are syncretists as well. Please hear me. They say they love Jesus but they engage in all kinds of idolatries that amounts to worshiping other gods. Did that make some sense, child of God? Please listen. So, you know, if you're really keeping up with me here in this church, what you understand is translate Buddha dolls and translate icons and artifacts of pagan gods from Egypt and and Babylon and, and the Greek culture and apply them to ideologies apply them to systems, apply them to ventures and structures, apply them to worldviews today applied them to everything that has emblems, that has icons, that has signs, that has colors, and frequently, because the devil loves laughing at people, behind those images and those icons will be doctrines and there will be names that are often associated with the pagan gods of this world. Am I making some sense? So please understand, you can actually think that the children of Israel are the only folks exercising what we call secretism or pluralism. But the average Christian today, spends most of his time or her time worshiping some ideological construct with the same level of passion and commitment that should be rendered to the true and the living God. They give their time to it. They give their essence to it. They give their physicality to it. They give their emotion to it. They give their bodies to it. Now, if you are a slave of Jehovah, and him only you are to worship. As Torah says, Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. If Jehovah is your God, you don't look like you spend time with other gods. You don't talk like You spend time with other gods. You don't act like other gods appeal to you at the same level of energy, at the same level of passion, at the same level of effort, at the same level of gratification, at the same level of benefit. When you know the true and the living God and you find in him everything you need, everything else is proportionally set way under God. So when people look at you, They see a slave of Christ. They see a slave of Christ. Listen to me, child of God. When they look at you, they should be able to go for him to live is Christ. For her to live is Christ. Every time she's turning around, she's weighing out these propositions over against the word of God and saying no, or yes, or maybe so. Get behind me. Get under me. Don't get near me because the only thing I want near me is the true and the living God. Not only do I want him near me, I want him in me. I want him on me. I want him working through me. I want the world to know I'm a slave of Jehovah, a slave of Christ. Listen. Until we are demonstrating that level of sincerity and truth, we are wide open to the very pluralism that they just told Joshua that they were going to do. Y'all keeping up with me? Now watch. Now let me show you why we know this is true. This is why I love narrative theology. Everything was good up to verse 15. Then these fools tried to negotiate a contract with a brother who can read the fine print. He read the fine print, didn't he? Look at verse 19. Now watch what Joshua says. Joshua says unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord. Do you see it? Yes, sir. You cannot serve the Lord. And here's the, why, here's the reason why. The Lord God is holy. Y'all ready? first sub point category. Watch this. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one, hate the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. This is why a lot of Christians are going to be fooled in that day. You cannot serve the Lord while you thinking you can serve other gods too. One reality is, is that on the part of the other gods, they're going to demand more of you than is right when you profess to know Jesus. Did you hear what I just stated? And when they demand that of you, immediately you're going to be tested as to whether or not your love for Jesus is sincere. Now, if it's not sincere, it's going to corrupt under the challenge of that pagan God, that pagan system, that pagan structure, that false ideology, that luring temptation, that mountain, that kingdom, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Isn't that the way Satan does it? And didn't Jesus say in Matthew 4, Satan, get thee behind me. It is written in the law of God. You shall have but one God and him only shall you serve. Did Jesus lay down the gauntlet? Did he prove that he was Jehovah's malach? Did he prove that he was God's servant? This is what I'm telling you, child of God. Joshua is dealing with a bunch of children who are committed to idolatry. When he brings the exclusivity of the gospel to them, and tell them it was the exclusivity of the gospel that got you out of Egypt. It was the exclusivity of the gospel that brought you into Canaan. It's gonna be the exclusivity of the gospel that's gonna keep you in God's blessings. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Sub point A, then you cannot word, you cannot, you cannot have two masters. You will despise the one. You will hate the other. Secondly, sub point B, the reason why you cannot serve God this way is because he won't let you. God won't let you. You see, you know what Christians do in this generation? They mold God into their own image. They use their carnal reasoning and then chip away at biblical truth. The proper propositional truth claims of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. See, so can I help you? A lot of people are Christians, but they are further and further and further away from the word of God which is God's depository of truth, which really lays out the plumb line as to how we are to behave. Now, when you get far far away from Scripture, you can pretend to be Christian. Y'all know a whole lot of people say, I know the Lord. I love the Lord. Where your Bible at? I can't find it. You keeping up with me? Right. And see, now they don't have to say anything else. All they have to do is watch you now. All they have to do is watch what happens in a 24 hour period, a seven day period a four-week period, a five-week period, a year period, that's all they have to do is watch you. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to debate you. They don't have to challenge you. All they have to do is watch you. And they'll see, oh, he's a slave of the world. He's a slave of money. He's a slave of prestige. He's a slave of fame. He's a slave of fortune. He's a slave of the flesh. Am I making some sense? All they have to do is watch you. And they'll see it. This is why I know my country is in trouble. I know my country is in trouble. It's in trouble. Okay. The the spirit of God is not working in the churches in our country, in the Christians in our country, because we don't have discernment. No discernment. It's really important for you and I to, to grapple with this. Notice what Joshua says: You cannot serve the Lord because he's what? Holy. That means you're not going to put a filthy pagan deity up against a holy God inside your heart and expect God to sit there and put up with that trash. The true and the living God will never do it. Okay, let's say that you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to be enhancing some of that as I deal with the second person of the blessed Godhead in terms of us heading towards the birth of Christ. So let's say you understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You do? Then you understand that the third person is the resident Lord in our life, is he not? The third person is the resident Lord. The Father's in heaven, the Son is on the throne, the Holy Ghost is here, is he not? Can the Holy Ghost be grieved by your behavior? Can he be grieved by your choices? Can he be grieved by your actions? Will he be grieved if you behave, make decisions, act, use your time in ways that fundamentally disregard the Lordship of Christ in your life? Will not the Holy Spirit be grieved in you? You hearing me, Christian? Right. This is what Joshua saying. And if we were to just treat the subject of being grieved, what that means is he'll wrestle with you for a little while and then he'll let you harden your heart. And after a while, you cannot not serve those false gods. Did you hear what I just stated? I see it all the time. Time gone. Mental focus gone. Resources gone. Committed to this, committed to that. None of that indicates you being a slave of Jehovah. None of that indicates that when you go on the job, the banner is up. And whatever they have to say, the policies they bring to you, they know they got to deal with your policy. Because every time you come to work, you got a policy you bring into. All right, lay your policy down. I'm getting ready to lay my policy down because I'm a slave of Jehovah and I'm coming to work on Jehovah's behalf for you, but you're not my master. We will do it also. Are you kidding? We will do it also. That's the point B in your outline. And so what does Joshua say in some point C? You will fail. You will fail. I'm almost done. You guys caught that? You will feel If you think that you can do Christianity the way people are doing it here in America, you've already f- fallen. Just like we have talked about most of our institutions being captured by regulatory agencies. Have I talked to you guys about that? Everything from our government. From our leaders, the Uniparty captured by big money. So that they cannot engage in policies that are healthy or good for the American people. There's his global. Y'all got that? But we see capture. We see regulatory capture in every institution in our society. Do we not? We see it in our educational system. Right. We see it every we see it in the media. You try to say something that goes against the stated narrative. And don't see how quick this tyrannical system of fascism shuts you down. Am I making some sense? Now, that's all. Psy-op, to get in your head to tell you they are God. Did that make some sense? When you are worried about opening your mouth and expressing your opinion and you're afraid that somebody's going to punish you for it, that thing is your God. A lot of Christians are trapped up in that. I'm making some sense, am I not? A lot of Christians are trapped up in that. And what Joshua was saying to the children of Israel now, fellas, that ain't gonna work. For you to make it in this crazy world of pluralism and syncretism and and multifaceted, just wild and bizarre ideologies and constructs, you need to be committed to the God of wisdom and power. You need God to guide you. You need God to strengthen you. You need God to keep you. You You need God to preserve you. You need the blood of Christ to purge you to wash you, and to sanctify you. See, because the mechanism by which God keeps us, if we're is his, is he brings us to understand when we're sinning. And he tells us once again, confess it, stay true to me. I have a mechanism for sinning. It's called the blood of the Lamb of God. By the way, Joshua has just made a covenant with these people, has he not? He's made a covenant with them by stones. Notice what Joshua said. Let me, let me wrap this up. Notice what Joshua said here in the latter part as he does his Verse 21, notice what Joshua does after he said, no y'all, no, y'all not gonna even make it. You're not gonna make it. You're, you guys are done. Let me go ahead on and state this for the record because they answered the people, said all of this quoting history and, and Bible verses. And Joshua said, no, you cannot serve the Lord. He's holy and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor sins. Is that what verse 19 says? All right. So listen, you know what he just stated? A a lot of these people are operating out of the presumption that God warned about back in chapters 15. Remember when he talked about the person that sins against me presumptuously will not be forgiven. Did not teach you all that presumptuous sin is never forgiven. And so to presume that God will forgive you for a rebellion that you are about to commit indicates you really don't know God and the pardon of his sins. Am I making some sense? And, and when God uses this construct, he will not forgive your sins. This goes back to Exodus 23, verse 20, with the angel of the Lord that goes before you and fights your battles. See to it that you fear him because he will not just easily. Do you hear how Christians say, but God will forgive me, but God will forgive me. Do you guys hear that? God will forgive me. He'll forgive me. And this is where you are dangerously proving that you do not have the love of God in your heart. You better hope he forgives you. Because he certainly gives people up, does he not? And when he gives them up, they will think he has forgiven them. But he hasn't given them power to overcome that idol. And they're still serving that pagan God. That's what's going on in your world right now. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? Can I keep teaching? I'm just about done. Listen, you can play games with God all you want, but you don't dictate to God whether and when he will forgive you. This is what Joshua is saying to these people. It's extremely important for you to get it. Notice what he does in verse 20. This is what he says over in verse 20. Uh, For if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, Then he will turn to do you hurt and consume you. After that, he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Boy, if that's not just straight up hostile arrogance. And Joshua said unto the people, you're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. That's a tough way to close a meeting. I don't have time, but here's what Joshua did. Joshua said, Okay, 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 okay. If you're going to serve the Lord, this is how it's going to be evident. Are you ready? You're going to put away all of these pagan gods that are in your heart. That's how we're going to know. This is how we're going to know that you're serving the Lord because you're going to abandon all of these systems that have trapped you 24 hours a day and turned you into an idol, and you have turned them into an idol. And you are going to now honor God. You're going to exalt him. You're going to prioritize him. You're going to make him preeminent as he is meant to be. Am I making some sense? Okay, you're going to do that. All right, we're going to do one more thing. We're going to bear witness to this. I want y'all to get some stones. That's a wild thing, isn't it? Notice what it says over in verse 25. uh, 25, yes. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a what? A great stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us, it shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest you deny your God. Do you see that? He put a big old stone up there and wrote on it the law of God so the Israelites could know what Exodus 20 says. Exodus 21, Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 23, Leviticus 26, and Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and 29, and 30, and 32. They can all know that what God said was, if you violate my covenant, I will destroy you. I will cast you out of the land. I will disperse you to the heavens. They all had it written down there right there in front of their face. Y'all got that? You know what this means? I'm gonna stop here and I'm gonna pick up and unpack that next week. Can I do that? Lord willing, we live and Lord willing, y'all come back. This message was so hot today, you probably won't come back. <laughs> this stone is about Christ. Yes, sir. I do want to unpack it. It's about the only one who can bear record with God's holy standard and say amen to God and do it while the rest of us pretend And we hear what God's word says. And we say we're going to do it. See on that day when testimonies are rendered to God. This is where I'm going to close you. I only know one person that will be able to stand before God. And say. Father. I did everything. You told me. To do. Now as for these fools. Who said that they could serve you and other gods too. I bear record as the word of the living God, as the mediator between God and man, that they said it. Because Jesus said it in the Gospel of Matthew. Every idle word shall be brought up before God in judgment. Your yes and your no's. Am I making some sense? This is what witnessing comes into to play here. These are Joshua's last words, and he is not doing this to condemn them. He's doing this to help them reassess their commitment so that they don't perish. Y'all got that? So next week we'll, deal, we'll drill down into the stones and figure out what this means. Amen.